God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the very fact that because of your Holy Spirit, a very ancient text can speak to us right now. And we can learn from your word and we can be challenged and encouraged. And tonight, Lord, we're going to learn the principles of how do we endure? How do we live by faith? How do we live as people who have given our allegiance to you, but we're going through really hard stuff? We get to learn that tonight, God. We get to have that reinforced tonight. That's so great. So I thank you for this class. I thank you for these men and women and their journeying in, in these books of the Bible. And we just pray that tonight would go according to your will, knowing that indeed, that it indeed will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter two. Now, where we, where we left off last week, Habakkuk uh, was complaining about his culture. His culture was pretty bad. His, uh, the politics of his culture, they were, they were corrupt. Uh, they weren't really in charge. It was, the, the leaders were kind of like a puppet administration. They were put in place by the conquerors, the previous conquerors, and, and they just kept having this revolving door of kings. And the last good king was Josiah, and Josiah had a kind of a weird end. And it's hard to say it was, a, it was an evil end because he didn't seem to be much of an evil guy. Josiah was a good king, but he ended really poorly. He made a really dumb decision and it cost him his life. And the rest of the kings of Judah are going to be his boys. And they're not much to write home about at all. They, they, they get their pages in scripture. They were king of Judah. Um, but yeah, we don't really get the impression that they were like God's anointed ones. They were just put in place by foreign rulers. And yeah, so, we're, so Habakkuk is a prophet. He's in Judah, so he's in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. And he's calling out to God. And God answers him. And he's calling out to God why and how long. And why do you tolerate this kind of garbage, God? Why? Why, 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 why? And God answers him. And there's two main questions that Habakkuk tosses at God. The first one is, why do the good people have to, have to suffer? And the second one is, why do the bad guys seem to get off okay? And, and I, I kind of, you know, brush them down nicely for you. But it, behind that is, God, why are you tolerating evil? Why are you tolerating these bad guys succeeding? You'll find this in like a Psalm 73. Why do the ones who tend to poke guy in the, God in the eye the most get off okay? And the ones who have it better suffer. The ones who actually love God suffer. The ones who hate God are okay. Why is that? And these are questions that the faithful have struggled with for, for generations. And God in his own way is going to answer, or at least he's going to address these two things tonight. So the first one is, why do the good guys have to suffer? Why, why are the ones who are righteous have to go through this? And number two, why does evil prosper? Well, what, what's the deal with that? Like, well, why, why would God, you have this be part of your plan? And so those two things are essentially Habakkuk's gripe with God. And they are most people's gripe with God. Almost every person who has, is angry with God has something like that along those lines. And this is something that my fraternity brothers had with me as well. They knew I was the Christian in the house. And then I came down with a really bad disease. And they're like, no way. You're one of God's guys. You're not supposed to get that disease. The other jerks, they're supposed to get it, but not you. And they struggled with that, theologically speaking. 
and you know, I, I invited the, the theological arguments. That's great. I'm, thanks, guys. Yeah, I, you know, God's still good, and he's still God, even though that I'm going through this. But Habakkuk, wants, he wants satisfaction on this, and he's looking at his culture, and he's realizing our culture is really horrible, and we're really going down the tubes. And God responds by saying, yeah, well, guess what? Worse is coming. So we are in chapter two. As we left last week with kind of verse one, we want to open with verse one of chapter two. So watching and receiving, one to three. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And it literally says there in the Hebrew, what answer I am to give when I am rebuked. What? You got to remember something. And that's number one here. Habakkuk's difficult pastoral position. Habakkuk's not just a random prophet. Think of him also like as a pastor, a pastor in his day. He is a person with a congregation of sorts, a nation of people who are looking to him to be the mouthpiece of God, the one who can unpack God's word, the one who has access. So many people look at their pastors that way. Okay, well, you, you, you spend your time studying to present a lesson for us, and you're going to unpack what God's will is using his word. In our sense, we have the word that's written down. In Habakkuk's sense, he could literally get God talking to him. So he's in a difficult pastoral position because it sounds like he's up against it. It sounds like Habakkuk is up against the ropes here when it comes to he doesn't want to give this message to the people that Babylon is coming because they're not going to take it too well. And it sounds like he gave them the message from last week, and they didn't take it too well. I've been there a few times. You know, being a pastor is not fun because there, there's like a public relations side of things as well. I couldn't even imagine what church leadership on the higher end have to deal with when it comes to like the coronavirus COVID season and the decisions of shutting things down and how much do, you know, we push back or how much do we just acquiesce and what do we do? And, and there are no good decisions, it seems like. And no matter what you do, you're going to get pushback. And that comes with leadership. And Habakkuk was going to get that because when I am rebuked, what am I supposed to say when I get rebuked? Verse two, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It, certainly, it will certainly come and will not delay. So number one, Habakkuk's difficult pastoral position. Number two, God sees the microphone here. He's got his prophets back. He could have told Habakkuk, you know what? Tough. Tell the people just to get over it. I'm God. You know what? Because God's done that before. He'll, he'll give a very, he'll give parts of his law. Then he'll say, you know, do not do this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. It's like, he just said, boom. But here, he's like, okay, Habakkuk, you want, some, you want, you want things to be able to say to your people? Say this. Write this down. It's just like God saying, hold on, hold on. You got to go get a stylus? Go get your stylus. Get yourself all taken care of. I'll wait. Here we go. Because I want you to write this down. This is something I want you to take to people and give to people. He's got his back. And God details how he handles his business here. You see that point three. Um, the revelation awaits an appointed time. But God, I'm waiting for your word right now. Why aren't you answering me in my time? That's not how it works. God handles his business. It, it, it goes on his timing. It speaks to the end and will not prove false. When God speaks, it's going to come true. God is the perfect prophet in a, in a way, you might say. Though it linger, you wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, that, that's the thing we don't understand about theology. 
we look at that and say, God, why aren't you coming back now? In fact, some of us armchair theologians are reading the newspaper and go, oh, Jesus, come now. Oh, Jesus, come now. Come, Lord Jesus. And we're looking at, and we're saying, oh, well, life's getting worse. So that means that Christ is coming sooner. Christ is never coming sooner. History does not play out that way. God can say soon. And in terms of the eons of history, it is soon. But it's next. Theologically speaking, don't get bogged down in dates and times. Just remember what's next. And what's next on God's theological calendar? The return of Jesus. That's next. And for those of you who are wanting dates and times, it's been next since uh, the Bible is still being written. Paul, Peter himself says, you know, in these last days. And if Peter can say during the last days, where the heck are we? But Theologically speaking, God's will is unfolding according to his preordained plan. God's plan is a plan A only. There is no plan B. So, next. Next on God's calendar is the events of the great portion of the book of Revelation. Next. Revelation 19, 11 to 21, when Jesus comes back, the rider on the white horse, next. So, write this stuff down, Habakkuk. Give it to your peeps. But just remember, God handles his business the way God handles his business. And God is the one in control. And God is the one who uh, is unfolding history, not me. And if you're one to get stuck, like I used to be in this position where, you know, oh, I got to try to figure out. I love the book of Revelation. I want to get my isms and ologies all lined up. And here I am. What position am I going to take? And you begin to lose sight of the fact that you can get everything figured out. And God's still going to handle his business the way God handles his business. How does God handle his business? God's way. And I'm not just hedging my bet there. God is the one who is unfolding history. So we turn to God, but in our turning to God, in our expectation of God, we're trusting God. And we're knowing that God's got this. He's got this. I talk to people all the time. And, and in counseling or just pastoral conversations and they're, they're worried. And I just say, so you know what, at some point, and that's my favorite verse, my favorite hospital verse is Psalm 4610, to be still and know that he's God. What, what that's really saying is calm down and recognize that God's got this. Whatever, however bad your situation is, God's got this. God handles his business. So you're either going to trust God to handle his business or you're not going to trust God to handle his business. That's all that's what it comes down to. And that, that trust is the cousin word of the word faith in the New Testament. Faith, pastuo, is that to have faith in this, really to trust. And two ways. So God's already, God's already answered right away. But here comes more. Write this stuff down. Four to five. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. So we got this great dichotomy here. The great either or. You're either going to be like option A or you're going to be like option B. And what seems like a toss away line, the righteous will live by faith. The Hebrew could also be faithfulness. So if, you're, if your translation says faithfulness, it's not wrong. It, it, it's because the Hebrew there is kind of a, it's a unique word, but the righteous is going to live by faith. And that means you're going to be faithful as well. 
it seems like a, it's like a toss away line at the end of the verse. That verse, the righteous live by faith, we're going to discover as we close today, was quoted in the New Testament three times, three different times. The Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of that author and took him to Habakkuk chapter two. This may feel like an armpit book of the Bible, a belly button book of the Bible. It's in there somewhere. It's like, this is pivotal stuff. The underpinnings of your entire, the foundation of your life begins in Habakkuk chapter two, the righteous living by faith. But number one here, the puffed up. Now I put on here the, the, the first, uh, we're going to get back to this at the end, but, but, but one of the three New Testament uh, citations of Habakkuk 2 is in, is in Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll read it here. It's in the, the light blue text here on your page. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what has, he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Now, there's something interesting here about language. And I'll just make it as clear as I can, because I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. A couple portions of it were written in Aramaic. Okay. The New Testament was written in Greek. But before the New Testament really took shape, you had scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, who came together for a period of 70 days and translated the entire Old Testament in the language of the lingua franca of its day, Greek. And so they call that the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, there's a cool word here. So the word that in the book of Hebrews talks about the one who's shrinking back, that Greek word is the same Greek word that they put into Habakkuk chapter two to translate that for the puffed up. So there's something about the puffed up that they're having this weird crisis of faith because in Hebrews 10, that's the word using for people who are just shrinking away from the church and who are taking their, they're going through a tough time and they're they're beginning they're questioning their faith. They're just kind of losing whatever they seem to have and they're just pulling away. And so you, you could take that and he's speaking of the Babylonians here in Habakkuk chapter two, their God is wine and they're, um, and you know, they're, they're just kind of living for their own pleasure but they're living for their own interpretation of the world. And certain people are like that. How they look at life, that's all that matters. And you either come along that or you don't. And relationships are that way. You'll see marriages where it's like one spouse is like, this is the way it's going to be. I see the world and life this way. And if you're good with that, come along. If not, we're always going to have problems. And you see that at you know, different places. And uh, Mick texted in, most New Testament citations of the Old Testament is actually from the Septuagint. Yeah, the, the, the Bible that the New Testament writers had, those guys couldn't speak Hebrew. Are you kidding me? They couldn't read Hebrew. I mean, Peter, James, and John, these are, you know, small businessmen, fishermen, plying the family trade. They're, they're not rabbis. They're not going to read Hebrew. Are you kidding me? But they could speak Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. You wanted to make some money? You got to know how to speak Greek. You're bringing home a Greek coin, a denarius. I mean, hello. It's like, so everybody had access to Greek. And so the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, a lot of those are using the Septuagint, that translation into Greek, not the Hebrew. Yeah, you could argue Matthew knew his Hebrew and Jesus, of course, was able to read Hebrew. And there, and Paul would have been okay with his Hebrew, of course, as, you know, rabbinically trained, but uh, as a Pharisee. But yeah, that just wasn't, people didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic and they spoke Greek. And they would hear Hebrew every now and then in the synagogue, but that's it. And so, yeah, so the righteous, 
the puffed up. So you either, either got the puffed up whose desires are not upright or the righteous who's living by faith. And we're going to unpack that in our lesson today. What does it mean to be a righteous person living by faith? Righteous is you're the just. You're the one who's pronounced just by God. You are um, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, Romans would say. And yeah, you are, you are pronounced not guilty because of Jesus. It's like he takes upon himself your unrighteousness and you get to take upon yourself his righteousness. And that's how Jesus on the cross, you find salvation because you are now pronounced just and you are pronounced righteous. It's not because of your own righteousness. It's because you, you give to him your bad and you get his good if I clean it up for you. And it's totally unfair, but the gospel is unfair. God loves you that much. So the righteous, they live by faith. We're going to get there. And a word on desires. I don't want, to, I don't want you to miss this because there are people out there. Um, I, I, I encounter them in my counseling, and you will, you will encounter them in your life as well. And they would take issue with verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. No, not, not that part, this next part. His desires are not upright. Think about that for one second. How dare you, Habakkuk, criticize my desires? How dare you? Who do you think you are? These are things that are inside of me. I haven't done anything with them. You see, there are certain people that will argue this way. I can have desires within me. But as long as I don't do anything with those desires, I haven't sinned yet. And my desires, or do I get bold? Some people will take those desires and use a different word. That kind of pop psychology is thrown on it. They would say their orientation. Could that be evil? Their desires are not upright. You see, the book of James would say, wait a minute, your desire is grabbing a hold of you, is giving birth within you, and then it's starting to drag you away. It's going to give birth to sin. We got to watch our desires. And especially if we are Romans 12, 1 and 2, being transformed by the renewal of our mind, our desires can be sinful. They are not just, well, I can look, but I can't touch kind of thing, or I can think about it, but I can't do anything about it. No, that totally misses the Beatitudes. That totally misses what Jesus says when you want to get to the heart of the matter, not just the actions. We got to be careful. So people can have sinful desires. That needs to be said. I just want to be, it's not brave of me to say it because I'm living it myself, but desires are sinful. And we can't just sit there and say, well, I'm not doing anything about it, but I'm just holding it within me. No, you're to love the Lord your God with all of you, including your desires. And yeah, uh, text coming in, according to Jesus, even entertaining those thoughts or desires of sin. Yeah, we, we can't entertain those. We, we, we're told to take captive selfish thoughts and submit them to Christ. These are things that if you have, if you are living a life that you are outwardly behaving, but inwardly you are not, congratulations, you have now passed Pharisee 101. Now chapter two of that life is to be clean on the inside of your dish, not just the outside. And that's what you're going to spend the rest of your life doing. Hey, that's where I'm at, kids. That inside, Joel, needs to be shaped up as well. It can't just be the outside. And anything you're going through, any hurt habit or hang-up, 
you can get clean on the outside first, which is good. Stop doing the things you shouldn't be doing, but on the inside, yeah. More often than not in mixed texts, they manifest even if in small ways, yeah. They do, we gotta be careful. Desires can be evil and not upright. We just gotta say it. And we can't let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, it's just something within me and it's not, it's not happening outside. No, 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 Jesus wouldn't let you off the hook. So we can as well. The amen faith of Habakkuk's original audience. The word for faith is linked to the word for amen. Amen, you say at the end of every prayer, is a Hebrew word and it essentially means complete. It means like, so let it be or let it be so. That's what faith is. It's tied to amen. So every prayer you end in Jesus' name, amen, thus may it be. Amen. There is faith there. There is certainty. There is not questioning. There is total trust. There is God. You've got this. Is everything that I've just prayed, O oh Lord, is according to your will and, 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 and placing it upon the name of Jesus in his character and all that wrapped up in faith. Amen. Amen. Faith. So the word for faith is tied, the one that Habakkuk uses is tied to the word for amen. So I have an amen kind of faith. Now the original audience of Habakkuk is going to get their butt whipped, literally. They are soon to be conquered by Babylon. It's coming very, very soon. And Jeremiah will, will tell them it's going to be 70 years of Babylonian captivity. It's going to be one of the hardest times of all of Israel's history. It's coming. So can you have a faith that is certain, even when you're being conquered and carried away and killed and your temple's destroyed and God, where's God? All, can you still have an amen certainty, even when life is at its absolute worst? That's the trick right here. That's, that's how Habakkuk chapter two grabs a hold of you. Can you have that amen type of faith? So I want you, every time you pray from now on, just let this stick in your crop. Every time you pray, you most likely are going to say the word amen. I want you to remember in that time, amen means faith. It means a certainty that is what your faith ought to be like. So you're ending your prayer with faith, like an allegiance kind of faith. Dang, that's pretty cool. A word on prophetic woes. The rest of this chapter is going to be some woes. And we're not talking about like, you know, giddy up horsey, whoa. No, that's a different way to spell it. This is a prophetic woe. This is in uh, the rest of God's chapter is God's words for the future. And these woes are laments to be spoken by survivors to captors. A lot of people don't like reading laments, lamentations, because laments are depressing. When people are crying about their situation, they're crying out in faith, especially when they're crying out in faith. How long, oh Lord? That's a lament. When they're crying out to God because their life is really hard. You see, laments, lamentations, they're not spoken by victims. Victims, and this is a problem with our culture today, kind of like the victim mindset. A perpetual victim keeps their focus on themselves. A survivor especially in faith, is long stopped being focused on themselves. They're focused on God because God is their hope. This is what sets apart biblical counseling from secular counseling. Secular counseling is man is the answer. Biblical counseling is God is the answer. 
the answer we're going to find to our problems is in God and his word, not deep within you or, you know, playing with your past or something like that. Lamentations are spoken by survivors. Here's what's cool about the rest of Habakkuk 2. It's going to go quickly. That's why I'm kind of delaying here just a little bit. God is giving Habakkuk's listeners, these people who are about to get their tail whipped and carted off into captivity, he's going to give them secret moves. You know what their secret moves are going to be? They're going to have these five prophetic woes. Dare I say, taunt. They could taunt the enemy, even as the enemy is in control and has taken them into captivity. They can taunt the enemy. They can remember that, hey, God's got this. You're maybe in power now, but my God's got this. These woes are laments to be spoken by survivors to captives. Every person I know that is a someone who has uh, had cancer and has gone away, they don't look at themselves as victims, especially if they're still around. They call themselves survivors because they looked into the face of it and they've come through and they give glory to God. Lamentations plant seeds of hope. They create survivors that are victims. See, victims have no hope. Survivors, survivors are explosions of hope. There's hope here. So when we read these words, these woes, they're meant to be, dare I say, like bullets in the chamber. It's like arrows to put in the quiver to be more culturally accurate at the time. It's like God's, I mean, this is, this is how God is telling them. This is how God answers. He's answering question number one. We're going to get there. Well, what about the righteous? And why, why do they have to suffer? Well, guess what? You're going to suffer, but the righteous live by faith. There's something different about the righteous. But what about the bad guys? Why do they, why do they get to win? Well, guess what? Even when you're getting defeated, even when you're losing, you've got this. You've got these things. So God is wanting to back there to tell his crew, even during those 70 horrible years, when it seems like I'm dead, because they're going to kill God's temple, they're going to just knock it to the ground and take all the good stuff out of there. Even when that's all going on, I'm still God. And I've still got this. And you can trust in me. Because while you're going through that, here's what I want you to say. First woe, six to eight. Will not all of them taunt with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So what's the first woe? The plunderer will be plundered. You see, even if they're not literally telling their Babylonian captors these things, keep this perspective in mind their time is going to come. And we don't know why God has ordained this to happen, but he's still God and he's still good. And we trust him. Your time's going to come. The plunder will be plundered. Second woe, nine to 11. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out. And the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So it's building your building. The very beams of your building is going to cry out against you. Second woe, the shame of the wasted 
life. It's like a person who's spending all of his life building this great structure. And he gets to the end and the structure is nothing but his own shame. You're like, you're, your whole existence, Babylon, you big puffed up, lustful monster you, is shame. It's, it's worthless. It's, it's, it's like, do, you do your thing. You go do you. God's got this. Mick texted in, Babylon is gone these days. Israel is still around. Just saying. That's a good point. Yeah. There are plenty of Babylon things out there. But yeah, Israel's still gone. And to be, to be fair, it's the, the nation of Judah continuing, but they, they did retake the name of Israel in the 20th century. But yes, the shame of the wasted life. Daniel texted in, the walls will cry out. He's calling a shot with the writing on the wall. He is. It's great. And what's really cool is where's Habakkuk at? Look at verse 1. He's standing on the top of a wall. He's just looking out there. Are they coming yet, God? You said they were going to come. And he's out there. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to know what I'm going to tell my people because you said they're going to come. And yeah, and he's literally calling a shot here because you look in the book of Daniel, when Babylon is in power, all of a sudden Persia is going to come in and just take over. Okay, so that's the writing on the wall. Yes, yes, yes. Great point, Daniel. Thank you. The third woe, 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And don't skip verse 14. Verse 14 is a great reminder that, you know what? Our God is still bigger than your God. Don't, don't forget that. Don't forget that our God is God and, and anything else is not. God's glory is going to be unfolding history. It's like that, that same verse, Psalm 4610, that I mentioned. Well, what's 11? I will be exalted in Jacob. I will be exalted in all the earth, in the nations, the Goyim. I mean, yeah, you're going through a really horrible time. You just, the terriers are nipping at your heels. Life has thrown you a curveball. You're just wading through the crap of life. And like, okay, you're telling me to be still and know that I am God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but what's the next verse? God's going to be exalted in all this. So somehow, whatever you're going through, as horrible as it may seem, whatever we're going through as a nation, as horrible as it's been, God will be exalted. God's glory will happen still. Still, yet it will happen. We have to get that perspective. As hard as your life gets, remember, God will be glorified through you in one way or another. Because that's the chief end of God, is to be glorified. And that's not sinful or selfish, because he's God. So first of all, the plunder will be plundered. The shame of the wasted life, your reality is ordered, number three, by the one you have sinned against. You're sinning against God. He's the one who's he's in charge. So good luck with that. Yes, Nick texted, for starters, our God is actually real. That's right. That's right. And all other gods, there is no other God. There's no one in God's category. And there's no, there's no great cosmic boxing match. On one side, we got Satan. The other side, we got Jesus. Who's going to win? No. There's no one else in that ring. There's no one in God's category. Let me scroll down here so we have the uh, page. Fourth woe, 15 to 17. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors. And this is gross, but you know, here it is. Evidently, Babylon did this. They, they would get people drunk and then and watch what they did and kind of play with it. Okay, I mean, it's just it's terrible, but he, he's condemning that. He's condemning it. He's not saying it's good. Okay. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. 
The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everything in them. So the fourth woe is you will be exposed and shamed. And by the way, there's one person in the Bible that was called Messiah that was a Gentile. One. And that person is Cyrus. Cyrus of Persia. You know, we got Darius the Medes. I put it on your page, Isaiah 45.1. God calls Cyrus his Messiah. The one Messiah that was a Gentile. Not a Jew. Cyrus. Cyrus is going to come and he's going to make things right. God's going to lead Cyrus to take, take on this Babylon and wipe him out. You see, you're going to be exposed one day. So as you're in the midst of your 70 years of horror, remember these things. I've got faith in my God. He's going to provide for me. God knows his business. He can handle his business. And you know what? You keep rejecting God. You keep making it hard on God's people. God's going to take care of his business. There you go. Fifth will. 18 to 20. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. That's kind of cool. Idols meant to be worshipped, but they can't speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? Is it covered with gold and silver? There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. You see, that last line is extra cool. Because right now, as he speaks to Habakkuk, God's temple in Jerusalem is still up. But in just a few years, it's going to be taken to the ground. Is God still in his temple, even if there is no temple? That's kind of a metaphysical question. Just think about that for one second. That's the same way answering this. Is God still God, even when all you think about God has been shattered? Some people like to answer it this way. Well, my God would never do that. And they're tied with the my God. Well, my God, my Bible doesn't read that way. Or my God, knock it off. I did that. That was my first year of seminary. I'd say that all day long, arguing, you know, predestination versus free will with my roommate. Oh, my God, I would never do that. Or my Bible didn't say that. Just a load of garbage. Who cares about what I say about God? God is God. Can God still be in his temple if there is no temple? Play with that metaphor for one second. Can God still be God? Is God still God when someone gets cancer? Is God still God when you lose your job? Is God still God when your marriage falls apart? Is God still God when your kids stop talking to you? Is God still God when you, all this crap goes on in your life and you don't know what to do? Can God still be God? Is God still in his holy temple when the world has knocked his temple to the ground? That's the question that I hope keeps you up tonight. I hope that plays with you when you're struggling with your issues, when you're tempted to think, you know what, God, the world's too bad. You, maybe you don't have this. Can God still be God even when his temple, can God still be God in his holy temple even when his holy temple has been taken down by the world? That's the question of a backing right there. Dang. 
your feudal worship will isolate you spiritually. Yeah, you, you got your feudal worship, you're making your things. Jonah talked about that from the belly of the whale. Is the idols are worthless. They don't do anything. They're not real. They're not I mean, real in the sense of being really real. Well, God's addressed in the blue here. God's addressed the, future, the issue about the righteous victims. Okay, they're going to go through hard stuff. They live by faith. They live each day as an amen. An amen to God's glory and to God's faithfulness. That's how the righteous live. Yeah, Daniel texted in, God's like the stars in the daytime. Even when we don't see him, he's still there. It's a good point. We don't see the stars. They're there. Mick texting, God is, as he told Moses, the I am, the only self-sufficient, self-existent person, the only person whose existence is not dependent on anything. That's right. We are told to live a faith like a child. Children are dependent. God is not dependent. As if he's waiting for you to make your decision before he knows what to do with your life. He's waiting for you to get on board before he knows how to move forward. No. That makes God 99.999% God and you 0.00001% God. And I don't want to worship a God that is dependent upon you in any way. And you most definitely don't want to worship a God that is in any way dependent upon me. God is not dependent on us. God's addressed the issue about the righteous victims. God's addressed the issue about the wicked. Okay, yeah, they're going to win. They're going to seem like they're winning. But guess what? God's got this. And things may unfold slowly. Go back up to verse 3. It awaits its appointed time. You might have to wait. Waiting sucks. It's hard. But guess what? We discussed this back in the beginning of our quarantine. How you walk, your attitude, your intellect, and your trust. Wait, W-A-I-T. How you wait speaks about your faith completely. So how will Habakkuk respond? In chapter 3, is his big response. God's not going to talk anymore. He's done in Habakkuk. He's handled the business he was set to handle. We have a quotable Habakkuk here. The three times that Habakkuk is quoted in the New Testament, I just want to go over them briefly, real quickly, the bullet points. Number one, Romans 1 for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And if you, if you think to yourself, well, that's kind of tangential, Paul then quotes it, for just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So living by faith is the heart of the gospel message. That's it. How you come to faith is all God. You can't, be, you can't go from being unrighteous to righteous on your own. Impossible. It is all God and God's work. So now, the only thing you can do to participate in that is by living. And be living, living this faith, living this gospel message, making those choices. Now, making those choices to live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. It's the heart of the gospel. Next year, Galatians 3. When's the last time you were in Galatians 3? Well, till now. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Uh-oh. But I obey the law. 
I read the law of God and go, well, I do that. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. It's more than at the outside legal law keeping. You could be living it on the outside and inside your desires to do a flip flops. That's not faith anymore. You're not showing faith if it's just the outside. We call that hypocrisy. And that can't be me. It can't be you. We, we can't live that way. That's not living righteously. Mick texted in, righteous live by faith is a big deal for Augustine and Luther. Yeah, this is it. Because if it's living by faith, then it has nothing to do with earning anything or keeping a sacrament so much so that you're going to get in. Or in a Pharisaic sense, keeping the law. Now, now I prove I'm on God's team. I have I keep the law and I'm his chosen person. And yes, it has elements of if you do have faith, you must live it. But it, living it doesn't get you in the door. God's choice of you gets you in the door. It's like God, it's like having foreknow and, and predestined. That gets you in. It's like God's choosing you to send his son to die in your place to pay your debt. That's the only way faith happens. Faith only happens if God, it's like Ezekiel on those dry bones. Until the spirit comes in and whoop, they're going to stay dead bones. That's us. The righteous have to live by faith. That's all we've got. And finally, in Hebrews 10, don't throw away your confidence. They'll be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he's promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. My righteous will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. You see, the little church that the author of Hebrews was writing to was up against it. The Roman world was just, you know, taking them on. And they were like, what do we do? And they had pressures coming from on the outside and pressures coming from the inside. And they were going to be toast. And these people don't want to meet anymore. They just want to give up. Like, let's just say, so the, the author still literally tells them in chapter 10, don't give up meeting with each other. Keep going. The righteous live by faith. You see, living by faith is the heart of the gospel message. It's more than just outward law keeping, but it's also, it, to live by faith means you're going to struggle and hope and endure in hard times. And I've said this before. Do not ever give yourself the freedom to say, well, I just struggle with this, unless you actively do struggle with it. This is just my cross to bear. I really struggle with this. Do you? Are you really struggling with it? Because it means you're, 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 you're at war. It's like you're really, you're struggling. You're just really like, I, I can't live with this anymore. I've got to struggle. You see, I can honor the struggle. This passivity, this, ah, well, this is what I got to deal with, you know, whatever. It's just my life. No. It's not your life anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ in me. The life I live in the body is not my own, but Christ who gave himself for me and died for me. Paraphrase Joel. Not your life anymore, bro. Sis. Living by faith struggles and hopes. So if you do struggle and you will struggle, do so with hope to maintain that hope and to endure in hard times. 70 years of captivity were coming. Is this who they were going to be? For God's remnant? Yes. The remnant that was going to survive? Yes. 
Living by Faith is HBO. Hear, believe, obey. Hear God's word, believes God's word. And belief is another way to say trust. But HTO doesn't sound good. HBO is better because of the TV station. Hear, believe, obey. Number two, trust in God's word. And when you trust in God's word, who are you really trusting in? The Bible on your lap? No. You're trusting in the one who gave the word, God himself. Number three, righteous have a relationship between their faith and God's faithfulness. This is where the Pharisees don't get it. This is where the Muslim doesn't get it. This is where the Jews don't get it. This is where the legalistic Christian doesn't get it. Your faithfulness doesn't get you on God's team. There's a relationship between your faith, but it's not between your faithfulness and God's faithfulness. Like, okay, well, God, you be faithful and I'll be faithful. We'll make it work. No, it's your faithfulness that's going to be living out, but it's your faith in God's faithfulness. So we read 1 John 1, 9, that, we, that we're, we're trusting on God's faithfulness. He is faithful and just. It's like his faithfulness is what matters. Because I know I'm going to be unfaithful. I struggle. And when I say I struggle, I wish I could say I fight as much as I Because I just got done saying that. I struggle with my sin. I wish I fought it harder. Do you wish you fought your sin harder? How are you doing in that war? Are you fighting it? Or is it just coming like, well, that's just a new chapter. In our struggle against sin, we are told. Like that's, it must mean we are struggling. To put on the armor of God means that we're, we're prepping for a fight. Whether it's an offensive fight or a defensive fight, we're prepping for it. So what is it? The righteous have a relationship between their faith and God's faithfulness. Number four, the righteous see God's faithfulness and endure in faithfulness. They see the faithfulness of God, and then they turn around and be faithful themselves. That's what it means to be righteous to continue to live righteously. God is faithful, so now I'm going to continue to be faithful. I'm gonna to seek to live faithfully based upon God's faithfulness to me. That's wonderful. The amen certainty faith that endures in difficult times, yes, respond in faith with hope and continue trust. So what do you do when you're up against it? These six things. What if you're in an impossible situation at work, in your family, within you? How do you live? How do you live by faith? These six things at the bottom here, kind of unpack Habakkuk chapter two. How do you live by faith? You live amen. Is your life an amen? That certainty you're praying in faith at the end of a prayer? Is your life an amen faith? Or is it something else? It's a more puffed up desire. And before you get, you know, kind of like, you know, well, of course it's not puffed up desire. Who do you think you are? I'm in your class, pastor. You need to take stock of your shelves. How much desire is there? Especially that desire that says, that gets all idealistic and says, well, the world's turning into this. And I can't believe the world's doing that. How dare this, you know, how? You look at your desires. You look at what's really going on in your heart. Who are you serving? Is it like puffed up Babylon? Or is it more amen faith of a surviving remnant? That's going to trust God no matter what. I get it. Cities are burning. People are freaked out about COVID. People are sick of being at home. People are tired of all this garbage, blah, 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 blah. Whatever it is. I get it. Life sucks. There's all this stuff going on. It's hard. 
But who are you going to be? Who are you going to be? The puffed up desire that shrinks back. Kind of like that, uh, the, the soil where they're going great, but then the weeds of this world comes along, the thorns, the thorns come along and and then what the heck, you know? How are you going to be? How are you going to live? Habakkuk got the big choice. How's he going to respond to this? Habakkuk 3 is one of the most precious chapters in the entire Bible. How he responds is beautiful. Remember, he's a musician. He's going to break out his guitar next week. And he's going to give us a song. Better than anything Lennon or McCartney wrote. He's going to give us something really great. One of the top three or four benedictions in all of scripture. He's going to respond with song next week. Whatever God said today was enough. That's an amen kind of faith. I'm going to trust you no matter what, God. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.